Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I am the author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. And of course, we'd really love to grow this uh, podcast and our influence for principal and mission-centered homes. And we could use your help. If you've been liking the podcast and they've been of value to you, please do a few things. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please share these out with your friends on social media and via emails. Please write a review so that others that happen to find our show will know how much you're enjoying it. And we'd really love to have you join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group. We do an after show, the show discussion, and we have Facebook lives and other cool stuff happening in the Facebook group. And we'd love to get to know you there. So please join us there. I'm so excited to spend a few minutes today talking to you about something that's really close to my heart, and that is addiction. I lived for the majority of my marriage, um, with a pornography addict and it was real tough and I have learned a lot along the way my husband who got a marriage and family therapy degree went on to find permanent sobriety and then to work with addicts for the last few years has also discovered a lot of tools that really help people to understand the very basic mechanics of addiction and how it works and how to overcome that. There are a few principles of addiction recovery. Of course, the definitive book on this is Alcoholics Anonymous, which we were led to years ago through a series of miraculous events and led to uh, Blaine finding permanent sobriety, which has been an absolute miracle in our lives. But I want to share with you some of these principles that we have discovered. I, I haven't been able to find them in a lot of the addiction recovery books, they're right there for the most part in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not like they're a mystery, but I do think that in the attempt to be more psychological or in the attempt to be more scientific or academic, we've steered away from some of the basic tenets of what really creates addiction and what solves or helps the addict to achieve sobriety. If, if you don't have addiction in your immediate home right now, I'm sure there's addiction close to you in your extended family, in your neighborhood, among your friendships. It's absolutely everywhere. And the reason that addiction is everywhere is because it is at bottom and in its very essence, a spiritual sickness. And I'm going to explain more about why that is the case. As we become a more secular society, as we move further away from God and from spiritual answers, we just can't find the answers to addiction recovery in the secular world. They just can't be found there because ultimately the addict addiction is created by wrong habits of managing life. The addict acts out in order to move from a painful state of being to a pleasurable state of being instantly without having to change their core way of being, their way of being, their way of approaching life and solving problems is broken. And it's broken on a very deep spiritual level. And that is why they can't break the habit, you know, break, break out of that cycle and you know, so often it's just ignorance. I mean, we didn't get it. We didn't understand for years and years and years. I mean, what's fascinating about it is that there's so many good people, 
really good people who struggle with addiction and, and even spiritual people, people who feel like their spiritual life is pretty much what it ought to be. You know, they, they go to church, they say their prayers, they read their scripture, they are devoted to their families. They, they're trying to be good people and they don't understand why this horrible thing has such a huge hold on them. Now it might be, it might be eating, it might be pornography, it might be painkillers. There are many, many ways that we can be addicted, but I just want to share a little bit of what Blaine and I have discovered on this journey, tools that have helped him achieve permanent sobriety, tools that have helped our children to stave off addiction. And, um, and it's, it's critical as moms, if we want principle centered mission driven homes, we have to understand addiction. We have to understand what creates it and how to overcome it. And that, that is born of a basic fundamental knowledge of what it is, of the principles around it. So I want to start by telling you the story of Cindy Bayal because within her story are some nuggets of wisdom that I think often get overlooked. She was a devout Christian, grew up in an awesome home. Her husband was converted to um, Christianity and they found each other. He wanted to become a pastor because his faith was so strong and his life had been so changed. And so they headed off on this journey together. They married, they had children. He was a pastor. They had a good life. They had two or three kids. They'd been married maybe eight or 10 years. And they had just moved to a new community where he'd been offered the pastorship over a larger congregation. And they were super excited. In fact, they were still, she was still unboxing. They were just brand new in this area, brand new in their home. And one day he came home from work and uh, he looked very downtrodden. She could tell something was really wrong. And he asked her to sit down. He had to, he had to tell her something. And so he, she, she sat down, was kind of worried about what was coming. And, and he told her, sweetheart, there's something you need to know. I have been addicted to pornography all pretty much our whole marriage. I have had multiple extramarital affairs. And one of the women that I had an affair with is now pregnant with my child. Now this was completely out of left field for her. She had absolutely no idea that any of this was going on. She didn't know what to look for. She would never have guessed at it. I don't know how he, he hid it. Um, but he did. And this, of course, threw her whole world upside down. She was devastated. She was overwhelmed. She was mortified. He had to confess to the people uh, who had just hired him to that whole board. And of course, he had to be fired. And now he had to find new means of providing for his family. I mean, their whole lives were totally turned upside down. And now there's also going to be this other baby that's going to be born to this other woman that's her husband's child. And, you know, so many people would have just taken this as their cue to get out of there. I don't know that they would have really searched in the way that she searched and dug deep the way that she did. But she really wanted to know what God wanted her to do. And in her heart, she was very humble, very willing to submit to what God wanted her to do, as difficult as it was. And so she, she said, okay, I got it. I got to leave. I'm going to go home. I'm going to visit my mom. And um, 
just try to get some distance and some perspective. So she goes home and her mom keeps begging her to go see her pastor. So finally she relents. She goes in to see him and she's expecting some kind of, you know, specific anecdote. You know, he's going to tell her, you know, what pastors usually say, I guess, whatever that might be. But he didn't. This is what he said. I would respect you if you felt that you needed to remove yourself from your marriage. What you've endured is very hard. But you are not a fool to stay and be part of the redemptive work in a man's life. I have never forgotten that sentence since I first read this book. You are not a fool to stay and be part of the redemptive work in a man's life. And it really struck me because, of course, several years into my marriage with Blaine still acting out, I had to come to that same decision myself. I was sick of feeling betrayed. I was sick of the pain and heartache that it caused. Luckily, he never had a full-blown affair, but there was enough really bad behavior. And of course, it's, you know, it's the lying and the deception that just goes on and, and you don't feel like you really know them. It's hard to feel close. You feel disconnected. All of that pain, all of that struggle. And I... I'm not trying to preach to anybody and I'm not telling anybody how they ought to live their lives. But I just want to say that you are not a fool. I was not a fool. Cindy Bayal was not a fool to make the decision to strive to be part of the redemptive work in the lives of one of God's children. You know, we, we say it's for better or worse. And I think we often want to just take off when it's for worse. You know, if it were a physical disease, we would probably stick around. And I think that often we think that the addict knows better. They should choose better. They're just being an idiot. They, but I'm going to talk in a minute about these triggers and anecdotes that are at the very heart of addiction. And I think once I go over that with you, you'll begin to see why there's so much mystery surrounding addiction. Cause honestly, doesn't it feel that way? Like you can go to support groups and nobody there is sober and you can't seem to find a good sponsor if you have one at all, or if you even understand that you need one, you know, people are paying tens of thousands of dollars to go to all kinds of programs and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. What is it? What are the principles? What is it that really does work? And I'll tell you first and foremost, an understanding that it's a spiritual disease and can't be solved by secular means is the fundamental truth that you have to understand. It must be solved by spiritual means. Now, sometimes you need medicine in there and sometimes you need therapy in there and sometimes you need all these other tools. I'm not saying they're not beneficial or necessary. What I'm saying is that Cindy Bayal turned to God and in her book, she recounts how he helped them to heal and the truths that they uncovered and the way that it really did become this bonding experience for her and her husband. He still loved her. He really did. He wanted to stay married to her. He wanted to work things out and he was willing to change. And I think that's key. But ultimately, it was her choice to stay and try to make the marriage work and to try to love someone through their spiritual disease. You know, your, your spouse, the addict, yourself, whoever it is that has the addiction, they're not the enemy. The adversary is the enemy. 
And so often we demonize ourselves, we shame ourselves, we shame other people, and we make them out to be the bad guys. And they're not the bad guys. They're just succumbing to this, the, the difficulties that they're facing and often because they don't know how to overcome them. You know, it's just like if you're in battle, you know, man down, you know, you're wounded and, and, and we need to be there to help them get up. And the more as mothers that we can arm ourselves with knowledge and truths and principles and build principle-centered homes around even addiction, the more empowered we and our children and our husbands and our families will be to manage these addictive behaviors that come and the struggles that we face because we don't want to feel those horrible feelings and so we want to seek out the pleasure to alleviate the feelings but if we have better tools if we know what to do instead then we can start on a journey to healing and that it's not going to mean that it's going to be free of errors or there's not going to be any backsliding it just means we don't have to live in ignorance and fear of the unknown especially as surrounds addiction. So Cindy Bayall decided to say yes to God. She knew that he was saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And she said, yes, I trust you. And it started them on this journey of healing that has been an inspiration to millions of people at this point as they healed their marriage and have taught others how to do the same. I can say from, from a personal from personal experience and the experience of Cindy Biel and many others, but, but my personal experience is there, there's hope that people can heal, that people can change, that they can overcome their addictions and their struggles, and that we can understand what's happening to them. And when we understand what's happening to them, we can manage ourselves in a more healthy way and we can stay away from the triggers ourselves. And that will keep us out of codependency that so often feeds the addiction, which I don't have time to get into that. But um, as I go over these triggers, I want you to understand that when we stay in a healthy place, that's the very best thing we can do for the people around us that are struggling. It's like in level one of the academy, we talk about this, uh, we talk about our real needs and we talk about the, the victim cycle and we learn all about the anecdotes for those things because the more mom is in a good place, the more mom is meeting her needs, the more mom is staying out of victim, the more mom is who she needs to be, the more power she wields in her home, the more spiritual power she has, the more energy she has to give, um, and the more purposeful she can be and she can lead her family, you know? And so that's what we want to do is understand it for ourselves and practice it for ourselves and then teach it to our families and build a home that can really resist addictive behaviors because we understand the tools for overcoming them, the anecdotes, what the, what's causing it and how to overcome it. And it's very, very simple. It's not all that complicated, but you have to come at it from a spiritual perspective. You have to recognize first and foremost that it's a spiritual problem that's happening. That's why it's on the rise. That's why it's out of control. That's why so many of these programs aren't working because people aren't addressing the core of the issue, which is, which is fundamentally spiritual. And this is why in Alcoholics Anonymous, which of course is a seminal work on addiction, uh, Bill and Bob became sober. They reached out and helped 100 alcoholics become sober. And then they wrote Alcoholics Anonymous to share the 12 steps that they had used and utilized with these individuals to help them to become sober. 
permanently sober and literally save their lives because alcoholism was taking their lives. Now, chapter four, this is so important, is called We Agnostics. So before they even teach the 12 steps, they teach that there must be dependence on a higher power. It says, lack of power, that was all our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Now, I think for spiritual people, quote, spiritual people, people, maybe like you and I that go to church, maybe you do, maybe you don't, I don't know. Maybe you have a relationship with God, maybe you don't. Um, but especially for people who consider themselves spiritual, who read scripture, who pray, who feel that they have a relationship with God. I think that this whole issue becomes even more confusing because they believe they're really actually using the spiritual tools. They do think that they're leaning on a power higher than themselves. But in the day-to-day practices of how they manage their troubles, they're actually not. And that's the irony. What's really going on inside them is a very anti-spiritual experience, even though they feel that they are spiritual individuals. And they, you know, they do, they love God. They do the behaviors, right? But they don't understand the ways in which they don't apply the fundamental spiritual truths. And each one of these triggers and anecdotes I'm going to talk about are part of every major great world religion because they are true spiritual principles that keep us out of spiritual trouble. And addiction is a spiritual ailment. Okay. So I know I'm kind of out, kind of, um, Counting on that, but I, it's so, so true, which is one of the reasons why step 11 or 12, I think it is, you take your daily inventory and then you turn your will over to God. The way that you stay sober, there's steps to get sober, and that's when you feel this tremendous freedom and release of temptation that you've never felt before. I mean, my husband's was like, since he was a little boy, I mean, he was exposed to stuff as a little boy and and never known had never known the freedom of not feeling it tempted on a regular basis. And for months and months and months, he didn't even feel tempted. He felt like a new person going through those steps. But then how do you maintain it? How do you maintain a life of sobriety? You go throughout your day saying, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. And it's right there in in Alcoholics Anonymous that alcoholics, addicts are willful individuals. They want to control. They want to be in charge of everything. They don't want to leave it up to God. And they don't want to let God's will be done. And so they, in exerting control, they pull inward. And that's what those triggers do is pull you inward, keep you focused on the self. And as you focus on yourself, which of course you can see in our Western society, how much there's a focus on self, focusing on the self is really giving into the adversary. Those are anti-spiritual behaviors that lead to temptation to act out and to free ourselves of the spiritual pain. It's really spiritual pain that we're feeling. So let's talk for a few minutes about what these triggers are. What's really going on inside the mind and heart and soul of an addict that is causing the temptation that's causing the spiritual and emotional pain that makes them want to seek out the pleasure that will cause instant release. Okay. That's really what's happening. It's like, Oh, oh, I'm out of that pain. And they feel out of that pain for a moment, for a period of time. And then the shame hits and the cycle continues, right? And it gets worse because now you're carrying the shame and the guilt in addition to these bad um, coping habits that, that you've developed. So resentment is the first one, okay? Uh, the, this is what Alcoholics Anonymous says. 
Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have been not only mentally and physically sick, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And so, of course, one of the steps is to write down every person you resent, everything you resent, and then to forgive, to let it all go, to make amends, to see your part in it, to recognize that even if all you were doing was resenting, that you have to fix that. It's really important. I, I don't have time to get into forgiveness, but I have learned so much about forgiveness and how it is not giving people allowance. It is not letting them off the hook. It is not tolerance. And it does not mean you have to turn around and have a close, intimate relationship with the person you've forgiven. Resentment is holding on. It's playing God. It's pretending that you stand in a position to make a truly clear and righteous judgment about another human being without all the information of their background, their life experiences, their levels of understanding, their levels of responsibility. There's no way that you and I could know that. There's no way that we can make that kind of judgment. And so resentment is making judgments about others and it's resenting their behaviors and holding it against them. And it has nothing to do with them. It doesn't even affect them. Resentment 100,000% only affects the resenter. It cankers the soul and it keeps them from receiving the own, the, the, the forgiveness they require from God because forgiveness is a conditional principle. We must forgive to be forgiven. And, you know, Jesus made that really clear. Forgive us as we forgive. And so in order to be forgiven, we must forgive and we commit faults all the time. And those faults canker on our souls and they cause us to be distanced from God. And as we hold on to resentments and withhold forgiveness, we really canker our souls and we lose the spiritual protection that God would offer us from all of the horrible things in this world. And so, of course, the anecdote is, is to forgive. The next trigger is selfishness. Now, we used to talk about four triggers. Now we talk about five because there's a subcategory of selfishness that I'll touch on in a minute that has a different anecdote. And Blaine learned that in working with addicts that he had to treat it differently. He had to teach it differently and he had to have them practice it differently. Selfishness is just, of course, focusing on yourself, making sure that you win. It's definitely a win-lose mentality or it's a shrinking. It can take the form of depression it can take the form of um, not thinking about others. It can take the form of only watching out for number one. But in every instance, it's all about you. You think completely about yourself. You worry about yourself. You're concerned about getting what you want. And the anecdote, of course, is to serve, to think about others. Now, it's not selfish when you meet your needs. So I don't want moms to misunderstand. And this is why we go into so much detail on this in level one of the academy in, in training moms to really understand what real needs are and to make meeting their real needs a real priority. When you need exercise, you are not being selfish. So it's important that you understand what selfishness really is. But as your understanding of selfishness deepens, you'll see 
you know, you're just sitting around, you know, worrying about number one. And so you've got to go serve. Now the subcategory kind of of that, but, but the third trigger as we, as, as, as I, we kind of teach it now, cause it's easier to grasp is self-pity. Now, self-pity is different. It's a different way of being than selfishness. And I want to point out again that these triggers are ways of being. They're not emotions. Some um, addiction recovery systems will talk about different triggers. They'll talk about anger or hunger or those kinds of things. Those are not triggers. People don't have addictions because they're hungry. And even God gets angry. And he doesn't have, definitely doesn't have an addiction issue. So there's nothing wrong with having emotions. There's nothing wrong with feeling our emotions. We don't want to think that we don't want to be afraid of our own emotions, but self-pity is a way of being. It's thinking only about how life is so hard and we have it harder than other people. I've seen it in myself. I remember specifically, in fact, being in my 20s. I had had a lot. I had three people very close to me, including my father, die by the time I was 18 or 19 years old. And I had moved all over the country like crazy. I had been through hard things. And I, I remember this moment. And I think I attribute kind of life experience and also my education to this insight. But at one point I realized my life isn't harder than anybody else's. Everybody's life is hard and everybody's life is hard for them. What's hard for them is real to them and hard for them. <laughs> and so it's enabled me to stay out of self-pity on a lot of occasions. But the anecdote for self-pity is gratitude. Anyone that starts thinking about poor me, poor me, poor me, my life is so hard and it's so much harder than other people's and I'm never going to overcome this and I can't do it and, and life is just so hard is not focused on their blessings. If you'll notice, even in success literature, even by people who say they're agnostic or even atheist, Gratitude is a principle that is consistently taught because it is so powerful. Gratitude, to a large degree, can keep you out of these triggers and keep you out of addiction because you're, you stay in such a good spiritual place. It's a spiritual tool. The fourth trigger is dishonesty. And of course, the anecdote to that is to be honest. In the Bible, we read about the father of lies. You know, the adversary is the father of lies. We don't, we can't afford to lie. We must tell the truth, be brutally honest. You know, when I was trying to help my husband be more transparent and not be so tempted, one of the things that we contrived at one point is that he would call me when he was feeling tempted because we didn't understand these triggers. And every time he called me, the temptation went away immediately. He would only act out if he didn't call me when he was tempted. Now, I would get really mad at him when I found out after the fact that he hadn't called me. Oh, that would always solve the problem. But it was because the trigger was dishonesty. He wanted to hide it. He wanted to be dishonest with himself and ignore the fact that he was being tempted. He was lying to himself. He was lying to me. He was lying to God. And so he didn't reach out and be transparent and honest. And he acted out. So when you engage in the anecdotes, when you, when you change your way of being from dishonest to honest or from self-pity to gratitude or from selfishness to service, you find that your, that your outlook changes and you regain spiritual strength to fight off uh, the temptation. And, and some of that pain leaves. You don't feel such a need to seek out that pleasure. Of course, the last trigger is fear. And what does God say all the time? Fear not, fear not, fear not. Now, he, it's not just good advice. He doesn't just think it's kind of like a bad habit or not a good idea. 
It's a spiritual sickness. Fear is not of God. Faith is of God. And so you have to fear not. You have to be full of faith. That's the anecdote. You have to believe. You have to be hopeful. You have to be charitable. You know, all those things you have to um, act in faith and get rid of that fear. And of course, all of those are inward turning. When you're resentful, selfish, self-pitying, dishonest, and fearful, you're turning inward. It's all about number one. And you don't think that you're doing that because you might be beating yourself up. You might be being hard on yourself, you know, or you might be thinking, oh, it's just, but, but when you're really honest and when you really look at it, when you really understand it for what it is, it really is all about number one. And that's why when you turn inward, you turn away from God. It's only when you turn outward that you turn to God. And these anecdotes, the thing that really hit me when we got to the core of this and understood it on this level is that this is God's way of being. God is never resentful, never selfish, never self-pitying, never dishonest, and never fearful. And so when we engage in these anecdotes of being forgiving, serving, grateful, honest, and faithful, we are partnering with God. We are helping to cure the spiritual malady. We are rooting out those bad, horrible, wrong ways of being and connecting to the right spiritual ways of being. And then we can achieve spiritual protection. And the better we get at being in this place, being in these anecdotes all the time, being forgiving, service-oriented, grateful, honest, and faithful, the more we're that way, the healthier that we'll be spiritually and the less likely we'll be to act out. So that's why I say that the person who engages in spiritual actions may not actually be utilizing the spiritual tools they're actually reading about. You know, they may be reading all about faith, but be actually full of fear. And they may be, they may understand on a surface level how important it is to be honest, but they lie to themselves and maybe to other people all the time about what's really going on. And so this is why you have to practice. This is why groups are so helpful. You know, I'm, you know, sometimes we need medication. Sometimes we need therapy and all those kinds of things. But if you're going to seek those things out, seek out people who understand these things uh, on an intimate level and who will guide in that direction and who will help the addict see. Now, see right there, you were being resentful again. And of course, it's so important to go through the 12 steps. And then of course, those last steps are maintenance steps. You review, you have a daily inventory. Every night you ask yourself, was I resentful, selfish, self-pitying, dishonest, or fearful today? You ask for forgiveness for those ways of being. And then you turn it over to God and all day long you say, thy will be done. And it's this very um, willing very submissive way of being, of letting God be in charge and not being in charge, not trying to control everything all the time and not trying to tell God that you know what's best because you don't, letting him be in charge. I want to just tell you that these tools have absolutely transformed our home. You know, just recently, my my daughter was, she was not, you know, always talking to me kindly. And I knew that she was resentful. And I had said to her, you know, you're struggling over here, but you know, it kind of, it's a mild struggle, but you know, comparatively, but you're struggling because of your resentments. I know, I know. And, and, and she struggles with self-pity and, and she worked with her dad and 
he had her do a gratitude journal and write down. I didn't, in fact, I didn't even know that they were doing this. And one night she had, she wrote, spent, she was to spend time writing down all the reasons that she was grateful for me. And I didn't even know that she had done that. But the next morning when I saw her, her whole countenance was different. She treated me completely differently so much so that I instantly noticed it and thanked her for being um, so, so much kinder to me. And so it's not as if problems aren't going to arise. It's not as if people aren't going to be human and struggle, but it's going to mean that you're going to know how to intervene early on. You're going to notice the symptoms much more quickly. You're going to recognize what's going on. You know, we can't protect our children forever. They have to grow up. They have to become independent. You know, filters may work when they're younger, but you can't do that forever. Just taking away their phone and grounding them some more and telling them they can't use the computer. We've got to arm them with tools to know how to manage themselves. And this is a really great starting place. Now, the books that I've referenced and um, this this kind of little chart of triggers and anecdotes and some quotes will be in the show notes on the website, themissiondrivenmom.com. So you can head over there and get those. And um, if you like what was said here, then you can comment or ask questions there as well. And we can chat about it. You can also go join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group where we'll have continuing um, after the show conversation about this podcast. And of course, if this was beneficial to you, please subscribe, share, review, Let other people know what we're doing here at the Mission Driven Mom because we really, really, really want to build principle-centered and mission-driven homes. We want to share the principles of addiction recovery and the principles of so many other areas of life that will help us to heal and become whole and be able to be a really awesome force for good in the world. Thank you so much for being here. It was so fun to spend a little time with you and I will see you next podcast.